Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I am your reluctant host, Jonathan Hall, and today on the panel we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. And Will Button. What's going on, everybody? And maybe some roosters in the background here as I'm sitting still in Guatemala for the last time. Nice. Today, what are we talking about? Dare I say it? I'm going to say it. Is it a shady topic? Go for it. it. We are talking about 50 Shades of DevOps. Awesome. So A nice, awkward pause right there. Yes. <laughs> may or may not be edited so, out, that whole sequence right there. Right? We don't know. <laughs> we'll have to see. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So we found this post from Patrick Dubois, the father, if we will, of DevOps. Uh, he was one of the organizers of the first DevOps days, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he had this post. It shows it's a chart, which sadly is really hard to share over a podcast. But we can <laughs> describe it and then maybe talk about the, the implications. So it, it's an XY axis. Along the bottom, it, it shows areas of operation. And then a, the, across the side, the, the, the Y axis is buzzword hipness. <laughs> so it's kind of comparing, it puts these different job titles that are DevOps related on this XY axis, comparing area of operations to buzzword hipness. So for example, the DevOps engineer title is right smack in the middle, with DevOps architect just a little bit above there. So according to Patrick or whoever created, it, I don't know if Patrick created this or if he found it somewhere else, but according to the creator of this chart, DevOps engineer is mildly buzzwordy and and oh, I, I should ex elaborate on areas of operations. The left-hand side is development. So that's where you're ha hacking out code. And then the right-hand side is production. So that's like installing servers and hard drives and stuff like that, I suppose. So DevOps engineer is halfway between those two. And then on the buzzword hipness, it's halfway between past and emerging. So past meaning, I guess it's not cool anymore and emerging meaning it's up and coming buzzwordiness. Uh, so that's one example, DevOps engineer. Down in the lower left quadrant or, or area, we have test engineer. So that's closer to coding and kind of an old school term, according to this chart. And in the top right, we have chaos engineer and resilience engineer, which are very production focused and emerging buzzwordiness. Did I describe that well enough? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I think so, but I'm also staring at the chart. So I guess that's really a question for our listeners, but it's kind of a one-way conversation. So so, so, we're going to have to assume that they're still with us. Yeah. So the call in right now, text us. So I mean, of course, we'll have we'll have the chart. We'll have the chart in the show notes, so you can definitely look at it if you want to. I know some of you are, are driving or riding a bicycle or or sitting in a dark corner <laughs> lamenting your life choices and you can't look at this chart. But for those of you who can, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I was going to sum it up one other way where we have uh, job titles as a function of area of operations, which according to this chart is somewhere between development and production. So how far along you are on that line to I suppose, kind of the end product and then also as a function of time. So, for example, I did used to be a sysadmin, which, according to this chart, is way, way, way on the past in terms of like job titles. (laughs) And that was a job title that I had about 10 years ago. So I think uh, it's relatively, at least in that respect, it's pretty good. Were you ever a sysop? No. Was, you know what that means. Admin. No, <laughs> no. Some some of these I, I'm, I'm looking at. I'm, I'm really like, old. No. No, you're going way back into bulletin board days with Sysop. Uh, exactly. I had I actually had somebody on LinkedIn a year ago, maybe ask me. I said, "Oh, I see you do DevOps. Do you do Sysops?" And I was like, um, <laughs> "I did on a 300 baud motor with my Commodore 64. I don't think that's what you're talking about." <laughs> <laughs> We've come full I think, circle. I, I think that falls off the bottom of the chart. Yeah, that, that yeah. falls clear off the bottom of that chart. Yeah, for sure. Not even on there. <laughs> no, but one of the things I really thought was cool about this chart is we talk a lot about how DevOps is not, it's how we do stuff. It's not who does it. And I think this chart is really cool in highlighting everyone who has a role and responsibility in DevOps, regardless of your title. Because in looking at this chart, we have full stack engineer, release engineer, infrastructure engineer, sysadmin, cloud ops, platform engineer. And so one of the interesting takeaways, I think, from this is it's done a really, it's been a very simple but effective way to kind of reframe that conversation that just because you don't have DevOps in your title doesn't mean you're off the hook for DevOps. And the inverse side of that is if you really like and are interested and passionate about DevOps, you don't have to have the title DevOps architect or DevOps engineer or DevSecOps in your title in order to to participate in DevOps. Absolutely. I also think one thing that I'm not going to harp on it too much this episode because I've talked about it before. But one thing I I see missing from this, and that's not to criticize it because you can only say so much in one chart. But I think any of these job titles, you could have the job title and not be doing DevOps, even DevOps engineer, if you're not (laughs) doing DevOps in the cooperation, collaborative sort of sense, right? If you're sitting alone in your own corner, doing DevOps by yourself and and telling everybody else to leave you alone, that's not really DevOps. So, of course, that's not on the chart, and that's appropriate not to be on this chart. But I I, want to just make the point that you could be doing any of these things and be doing DevOps or not be doing DevOps, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious to hear, Jillian already started us off on this this direction, but which of these titles have you had? And, And what I'm curious, like if we could chart these over time, has each of our careers gone a particular direction on this chart? Or have we jumped around a lot? Jillian, do you want to start? Since you said you've been a sysadmin, what other titles have you had that are on here or close to something on here? Uh, I've been a sysadmin, infrastructure engineer, and research engineer, which I think would 
the closest kind of titles would probably be data ops or ML ops. Also, I kind of disagree with the chart a bit on saying that data ops and ML ops are so much towards like the development side of the curve. So if like we have Mm -hmm. a spectrum between development and production, the data ops, ML ops are considerably more towards the development side. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have a real good follow up to that. But yeah, those have been my titles. Why would you, why would you say that they're, they shouldn't be so development oriented? I would say that data ops and ML ops are basically DevOps, but when you're dealing with data. And uh, I think we had this conversation or a similar conversation when we were talking about maybe agile with software. And I was I was getting all bent out of shape because I was like, but they're not talking about data and I'm only here to talk about data and, you know, and all that kind of thing where I think more and more or maybe, you know, it's just. Uh, like me and the kind of projects that I work on, it's not just the software. You have data and the data also has to be versioned. It has to be QA'd. You have people like reviewing it and it's as much an integral part of the software as like the software itself is. And like, where are the processes to kind of take care of these things? And where is it on kind of the agile sort of manifesto? I suppose there is agile coach also in this development roles. You can't produce... <laughs> The Agile coach being on here strikes me as a little bit strange because at least the most Agile coaches I've met don't do any coding, but they don't do operations either. I think there's really a third dimension that's missing here. <laughs> Jonathan, bring the baby. It's okay. I'll make yeah. funny faces at him and you guys can talk. Okay? <laughs> it's actually my nephew's daughter. It's, it's not even my own son. Listen, I don't care. There's a baby. Like, that's, that's really all that I want. She, she's she's five. You call her a baby? My oldest just turned 11 and I did a lot of crying, so it's fine. Bring her on. Bring her on. (laughs) Since we're on the tangent, by the way, I'm super excited to announce that I am now the father of a toddler. Toddlers. He started. He's taken his first step. He took his first step back before Christmas, but he was so afraid to do it that he actually started walking around his own last week. So we're we're super excited about that. That's awesome. (laughs) That's so fun. Now now we're family friendly again. Now we can go with that title without being in fear of not being family friendly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, fine. I'll just talk about my kids for the rest of the show. But really, I love toddlers. Everybody talks about babies, but no, toddlers is where it's at. So what were we talking about? Agile coach, I think. Yeah, yeah Jillian was saying that back on the, the data thing, data people. I think if you just put your data know, in like a blockchain, like then versioning data. solves itself. No, no, no. Blockchain fixes okay, everything, about, doesn't it? Go back to this example of medical data, right? Where you have to have a human in a loop. Would you be happy with like your cancer panel being way on the development side of the of like the order of operations as opposed to the production side? Like if you kind of think about it in that context, or do you want the same sort of level of... So I think as as it relates to data, and also Agile Coach is a similar example, there are definitely dimensions missing from this chart. So, and like if you had a web designer, where would that fit on here? Web design involves some coding, but it also often involves some infrastructure if you're if you're doing Google tags and uh, tag uh, manager and stuff like that. So there's a lot of a lot of jobs that overlap with this that I think have elements that are completely un- unrepresented on this chart. And I think data is an example of that. I think agile coach, scrum master. I think there's a lot of it's a two dimensional chart that's trying to describe co- many 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 complicated humans. <laughs> it's it's not going to be perfect. But I agree with you, yeah, Julian, think- that it's not really representing the data aspect of things in a in a true sense. I think a lot of what this chart kind of demonstrates too is that the tech is moving so fast and technology and, and data and all these kind of things. And we keep on trying to come up with like new sort of ways to describe it. And yeah. I understand that because like we're humans and we use language and that's that's what we do. But I'm not really that sure how well it's working. Like when I look at this chart, it's like, you know, do these 
do these roles really mean anything? Because they all hmm. evolve so rapidly. Can anybody even keep up with these? Like, I don't think I heard ML ops until, I mean, less than a year ago, but I've been presumably yeah. doing that like for years now. So what, and now there's AI ops. I don't think I've ever even heard of AI ops before. So I think AI ops, as I understand it, and and I don't want to claim that this is true because it probably means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. But my understanding of AI ops is that it's actually completely unrelated to ML ops and probably belongs closer to the operations side because I think AI ops is self-healing systems. I don't think it has anything to do with machine learning, except that machine learning is used perhaps to detect failures and recover from them. Does anybody have information to tell me I'm wrong? No, but I was reading about the AWS carpenter platform and i think it's kind of trying to do some of the things i don't i don't totally know because like i only looked at it very briefly and i think it's kind of trying to do some of the things that you described where it's supposed to be like hey stupid humans don't try to manage this like we're going to manage this for you so i wonder if maybe Mm -hmm. that's kind of a form of ai ops are there any are there any kind of platforms or tools maybe you could throw out sure there are but i don't know give us a better kind of frame of reference for that i don't know of any yeah me either yeah, I don't even have a smart-ass joke to insert here. It's completely out of my league. We have failed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a wrap, guys. <laughs> On adventures All right, Will, what, what, which of these titles have you had? I've had sysadmin, application support, cloud ops, infrastructure engineer, DevOps engineer, software engineer. I've never had the title full-stack engineer, but I think I kind of fit that category. Website. Yeah. Most of the titles that I've had seem to be on the lower bounds of the hipness schedule, yeah. hipness <laughs> axis. I felt that way too. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I've never used the title full stack engineer, but I've definitely done it. I, and in fact, I, I joke with people. I said I was doing full stack when it meant installing the servers and writing the software that ran on them. So in, you know, in that sense, I was all across this lower spectrum. Right. Which part of full stack? <laughs> Like that, like that was the stack. That was the full stack, you guys. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was installing packet. servers in the rack. I was running the Postgres and inst- writing stored procedures in Postgres, writing the backend code and writing a little bit of front-end JavaScript code and definitely HTML templating and, and so on. So it was, it was full stack. But I never used that title. And I hate that title, by the way, for reasons that don't matter today. But I hate that title. But so I've been a definitely a software engineer. That's probably the only title on here I've officially ever had. But I've definitely done build engineering and release engineering. I've done, I get, I, I hate the tev- DevOps engineer title also because I think it misses the point of DevOps, but I've done the things that DevOps engineers do. I've done SRE things. So I've kind of been all around the lower half of this chart as well, I think. Old, so, and SysOp, you know, the below the, the lower lo- line of this thing. I've been completely- Dropping off before. the chart there. Yeah. So I guess the big question is, are we just not cool enough to get those- super hip titles or do we just need to go claim those for ourselves i guess we can go claim them and endorse each other on linkedin for them does that work there we go i think i think a better approach will is to invent a new title that's hipper than all of these old ones. <laughs> i like the nerd titles myself like for a while i had my title on linkedin as uh wizard s of scientific computing computing i really nice. like that one uh-huh. My goal was that, like, I wanted for some poor intern at LinkedIn to be like, oh, is this a thing like ninjas? Like, do I have to worry about this? You know, like, what's happening here? <laughs> None of them ever caught on quite that much, though. So we got to we got to figure out something to make, like, my dreams come true here with harassing the Co- intern, Code whisperers. I, I don't know. Code whisperer. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I like that one. So ha- have you seen your careers move across this chart, either up or 
or, or down or to the left or right? Or has it been focused in an, a particular area? I suppose for me, a little bit left to right, because I was actually, well, I was a data analyst, which isn't even on this chart. And I'm not sure if that's a thing. Now they're called data scientists. And then I kind of moved more into soft, like software engineering and uh, I suppose more like infrastructure engineering, because I was on the, the high performance compute side, which is like you have to know software, but you also have to know infrastructure to make your pipelines work because we, you know, we weren't cool. We didn't have like serverless functions or anything like that back then. And now... I kind of call myself a DevOps engineer, but I, I tend to change my title around a lot. I'm not really that happy with like any of the sort of titles. I don't think they're especially descriptive like to what I do on kind of a day-to-day basis, which is I suppose I do like automations and infrastructure for biotech startups, but it's really like as it relates to like just a very few specific things, which are like real-time data visualization of large-scale genomics data sets and being able to run analyses and like do like a scatter gather on an HPC. I need to I need to come up I need to go find somebody who can make me like a really succinct title because I'm so bad at naming stuff. Like it's really, you know, it's a problem for me. It's a struggle. <laughs> what, about what about you, Jonathan? You know, What's your progression? So should I go first? So I was just thinking about this and I'm I'm not exactly sure. I, I think I have two answers. I think the first answer is that my my own self-conception of what I do has moved from left to right. That is to say that early on, I, I considered myself a software developer. And over time, I have moved towards the operational side. But in reality, as I was describing, I was a full-stack so-called developer installing servers and doing operation stuff. And even before I had that job, I ran my own ISP with dial-up modems and everything. So I really think I've, I've spanned the entire lower, you know, the, the left to right. I've, I've pretty well spanned that whole thing my entire career. I just... It's that early on, I felt like I did the operational stuff because I had to, to support the coding that I enjoyed doing. And over time, I've come to sort of embrace it all and see it all as part of the job. So I don't know. I guess that's my answer to the question. Right on. So folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, you guys get like a billion errors a month. Uh, what, what are some of the more interesting errors that you've seen over the years? Oh, that's that's a good question. We certainly deal with a lot of errors. Um, a couple of things uh, come to mind. Um, when we very first launched and we kind of expected, you know, we'd see some people sign up and try it. We actually got one of the uh, top 10 Facebook games. Remember when they were huge? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so they, one of the top 10 Facebook games and it was between us, one of the most buggy bits of software I've ever seen. And so oh, it man. managed to completely blow us off the internet in like our first week of launching. Um, so we, we solved That's that why I couldn't win at poker. <laughs> <laughs> Those Farmville animals. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there was another, uh, another one always sticks in my mind because obviously we, we track JavaScript and just like with mobile era crash reporting, you know, you can't access the end user's browser console to see yours. So you really want to track that and report it. Right. And, um, I remember this one customer and, uh, they, um, had this really fancy animation on the, on the cursor on their website. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, their JavaScript to do that, uh, they deployed a bug with it, which meant that on every single mouse move event of every <laughs> single customer they had would send a uh, an error report to Raygun. Um, so, it, you know, working at Raygun is like dealing with a constant distributed denial of service attack and uh, doing it with style. So, so if you want to know what kinds of interesting things are going on that you're not seeing in your app, you ought to check out Raygun. Um, the, they're doing a free trial right now. You can get it at raygun.com. So I'm the odd person out here. I definitely started hard right, installing, configuring hardware, networking, 
Because I originally got started, I was a telephone system installer. And then the whole office computing thing started taking off. And we're like, well, we're here putting in telephone cables anyway. Y'all want some network cables and put in network cables. And then they were like, well, those are great, but they don't do anything. Oh, you need a switch. Put in a switch for them. Actually, there weren't even switches back then. It was just a hub. And then that led to installing servers and slowly led to uh, less and less hardware stuff and more software because it was hardware failure was pretty evident and that troubleshooting was kind of apparent. But the vast majority of the problems turned out to be software problems. And so I just followed the problem and that's how I ended up learning to write code. Cool. What do you think new people who, who are joining the, the tech industry these days, maybe a, a recent college grad or boot camp grad, what, where are they usually finding themselves on this chart? Usually software engineer. That's what I always see. Like people who kind of ask me for career advice, they say that they're looking for a software engineering role and they come out of either they went to school or went back to school for a computer science degree and or boot camp. And yeah, they're looking for software engineer. And I still see a lot of full stack engineer. I do think that's kind of going away. Full stack? But you think it's going away? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it's not a bit farther down. Like it's it's quite high up on the or it's about it's a little bit more than halfway up. I guess on the emerging, but I mean, it's, the, it's been a title for the first time I heard that title was about five years ago and I had to go, what, yeah. what do you mean full stack? But I mean, maybe it's been around longer and I was just living under a rock. I don't know. I think in terms of web, I started to hear it like five or six years ago. I'm not sure mm -hmm. though. Yeah. The first time I heard it was a, someone speaking at a conference. And I don't remember who, and their exact statement was, if you tell me you're a full stack engineer, I'm going to demand that you immediately show me how to configure the Grub bootloader on Linux. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people put way too much thought into this. Yeah, but I think Wait, Jill, I, I agree is with that Jillian. Grub one or two? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I agree with Jillian. I think most people entering are coming in through a software engineer, but... I think there's a definite group of people who I feel like should be aware of this that aren't. And that's the people who haven't gone for a computer science degree, but are going for an IT management type degree. And it seems like a lot of the people coming out of that curriculum are educated in like Windows Active Directory and the very Microsoft centric corporate environment and don't really have any knowledge of building and deploying and maintaining code that didn't come from the the official Microsoft store or whatever that thing's called. I don't know that that's a good career move anymore, though. Like so many IT departments just get completely axed like overnight. Like I used to work in IT people and I don't anymore. <laughs> so, you know, so that's kind of my perspective of that. I suppose that's a totally, totally separate yeah, that's kind of a separate issue. Yeah, no, this and this yeah, came up recently with someone who was uh, talking to me about their career. And they're like, yeah, I'm enrolled at this college and they're, I can't remember what it's exactly called. It's like IT management, I think was the degree and want to know if this curriculum is going to be helpful to me. And I looked at it and it was configuring Active Directory, configuring Microsoft Exchange Server, creating user groups and file permissions on Windows file servers and, and things like that. And I was like, well, there's like some valid stuff here. I can't say that it's not valid, but 
It's definitely not comprehensive for today's world in IT. Mm-hmm. So when, I, when people ask me for career advice, I usually get it from two different angles. It's, it's either people who are, as Jillian said, they're software developers or, or becoming software developers. The other angle is usually people on the more people side, scrum masters, agile coaches, or, or people you know, who, are, who have project management type experience. And they're either trying to manage software developers or interested in making a career switch to become a software developer after having managed them or worked with them for a while. <laughs> Which, in either case, that that's really the left side of this chart, I think. So you were you were talking about your experience with uh, people moving from to software engineering from other. Yeah. So I hear people like just a random question I got recently was somebody asking, "How do I become a, a DevOps coach?" Yeah, so I get questions like that. I suppose because I do that sort of work, they thought that I could tell them my career path. And I did. I said, well, first, I spent 15 years being a software developer. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that was the answer he wanted. <laughs> no, but, you know, that brings about a really interesting kind of point that I've been thinking about. Because I, you know, like I also I do some volunteering for STEM away and just kind of like with random people that ask me, I try to be helpful. And I get a lot like, well, how do you become a DevOps engineer? And kind of more and more of my answer to that is, and I don't want Ford to be snarky, is like, you know, DevOps engineers are not, they are not born, they are made <laughs> through like right. pain and suffering. You know, like just like you're on the job and as you're on the job, you know, you like you're learning about all these different systems. And then the thing is, is that you're really like DevOps isn't even so much knowing about one system. It's knowing how to connect the systems and it's knowing the way that the people interact with the systems, I think, more than right. anything, which is something that I think that like it's always been the really interesting part to me anyways, because I'm, I'm just generally more interested in people problems than in tech problems. So I'll go like talk to the scientists. And the problem is not that the technology doesn't exist. Usually it's there and it exists. But it's like, how do we take this and translate this for the people to actually be able to use it? And maybe that means coming up with like a real fancy make file, or maybe that means coming up with like some nice web interfaces or something. But it's it's really knowing like how to pull together these different systems and interact with them. Yeah. So specifically yeah. on DevOps, I don't know. I'm like, or sometimes I'm like, I don't know, go learn Docker. Like, really, I don't, I don't know, guys. I don't have any advice for anybody who wants to come into the DevOps profession. Title will probably be gone in a couple of years anyways. I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> What do, you want to I, replace I, it? do you have something you want to replace it or you just want it gone? To me, a DevOps engineer is, is an oxymoron because it, it's, it's like having a title of collaboration engineer. You don't, yeah. you don't, you don't give your collaboration to the other team. <laughs> Even worse than that is the DevOps team idea because the whole concept of DevOps is tearing down silos. So you can't put your DevOps in a silo and call it DevOps. It's, it's like the antithesis of DevOps. So that, that's why I don't like the title or the, uh, of the team or the, or the person, because I think it, it completely misses the whole point of what DevOps is supposed to be, which is bridging the gap and tearing down walls between Dev and Ops. So in my view, the proper title is developer and operations engineer. And maybe you do both, and then maybe you're some, some kind of full stack or, or whatever. But that's why I don't like the title. But the title does exist. I was just thinking, I kind of wish we could have picked up the title, uh, you know, like user research or user experience. Because I think in terms of like actual concepts, I think of myself as doing like user experience or user research a lot more. It's just that my users are scientists and they need to go experience the high performance compute systems. And I'm like, I'm always trying to think of new and innovative ways for them to do that. But I think it's already kind of stuck in people's heads so much as like a like a purely web development thing. Whereas I really don't think of it that way. I really think of it as like, we have these things and people need to be able to use them. And like, how are we going to bridge that gap? You know, one concept, you reminded me, one concept that I I really do like, and it's not on this chart, and, and it could be a job title, is that of developer experience. And I think a lot of DevOps engineers kind of 
fall into that category or, or want to. And that is the idea of building a platform that makes developers' lives easier. And I think that's useful. That, that's sort of a platform engineer, maybe a title you see more often. But I like the developer experience angle because it, it focuses on making lives easier, not just providing some technical service. The, the potential problem with that as a title is that often developer experience is more of a PR role. Somebody who goes to conferences and tries to convince developers to come work for the company, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer, but it's, it's often used in kind of that way, I think. So I think the potential pitfall with developer experience, because I've worked with it in both positive and negative scenarios, is developer experience has to be phrased. Well, it comes back down to communication. You know, It has to be communicated correctly that we're trying to help you get your code to production easier. We're not here to take stuff that you don't want to do away from you, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, you see that a lot with whatever title, whether it's developer experience or DevOps engineer or whatever. True, yeah. That. And I see both sides of that coin. I see developers who are trying to push things off on the DevOps team because they don't want to, because Docker is not my thing or whatever that whatever their, their stick is, right? And then you could also see it the other way that the DevOps people feel like they're supposed to to make things easy, so we have to take this burden off of them. We 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 wouldn't dare let our developers write their own Docker files because that's that's our job. You know that I don't think DevOps is about that. DevOps isn't about it's my job, not yours. And, and that's not to say that everybody has to know everything. We talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, if, if everybody had to know everything, and we all had to be generalists. It would no, we would never get anything Nobody done because anything. there's so much to learn. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there, there's definitely room for specialization, but that's not an excuse to to push your unfun work off on someone else. Yeah, and that's easily resolved with communication. Yeah. I've also noticed, it's not on this chart, but more and more I've noticed as I've been signing up for these kind of different, like, I suppose they are these platforms that are supposed to kind of make developers' lives easier. Like I signed up for um, Formstack and they're awesome. And now I'm looking at like AppSmith and just these kind of different apps where I'm like, no, my favorite code is the code that I don't write. You know, how can I possibly farm this out some more? And they all have these uh, like client success people. And I'm, I'm very surprised at the level of attention that I get for my like $100 a month or whatever it is that I'm paying. And usually the person isn't technical at all or maybe like a little bit technical or knows just enough to be able to sort of translate what you're saying to the engineers. But it does seem to be a very important position because, you know, like you were saying, well, the, the communication is very important. So you need to have somebody who's speaking to customers and who can at least speak like a little bit to the technical folks and then also be able to kind of translate that back to the engineers and product managers and whoever else is involved in the conversations of how to make things better. But they're they're really just there like to talk to me and make me feel better all the times, I think, which is I think is great. Have you seen Office Space, the movie? No, I Oh, yes. It. Many times. Uh, you have to watch it, Jalen, because you're just describing this. There's this one section where they're interviewing the guy and you're like, what would you say that you do here? And, and he just goes off and loses loses everything. He's like, I talk to the engineers so the customer doesn't have to. What the hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the way that I really feel sometimes, though, where I'm really like, you know, sometimes I'll be talking to engineers and I'm like, oh, you're never allowed to talk to my scientists. I don't know. You've got to go like, sit in this corner over here. And like, I'm, I'm going to talk to the scientists or like, I'm going to have to hire somebody to talk to the scientists. You know, like one of my sisters will be like my new, you know, my new co-host or something. But like... <laughs> <laughs> no way. I don't know. I hope that's kind of a dying stereotype, though. I think it is that the, you know, kind of like the grouchy engineer who just sort of tells everybody that they're stupid no, and yells a lot. I, I, think I, that's I wish kind of ending. I have seen that come up, especially in the QA 
circles. If you talk to QA engineers, especially the, the ones who have been doing it for 10 years or longer, you get a lot of that, that devs can't write tests. They don't understand customer requirements. You have to have QA do that for you. And this mindset just, it's, it, I don't understand how it survived past 2010, but it is it is prevalent in certain circles. You only have to convince your manager that it's true, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It does. It does feel like the stereotype of the the grumpy engineer down in the you know the dark corner with his computers, antisocial. It feels like that's like not relevant or accurate anymore. At least where yeah. the places where I hang out. I agree. I mean, you used to have to be a nerd to even have a computer or an email address. And nerds were the kinds who would sit in their parents' basement or, or attic or whatever they had and, and, you know, hack until three o'clock in the morning doing antisocial things. That, that's not true anymore. The computers have become mainstream. It's no longer shameful to say that you met your spouse on the internet like it used to be. <laughs> yeah. So. I don't know how I feel about this, though, you guys. I've made like a whole career off of, you know, being the nice person to talk to. You know, sometimes <laughs> I was like, you know, that guy over there. No, no, no. Really, I've really like marketed on this aspect where I'm like, you know, that guy over there is like a lot better at this thing you need to do. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to talk to him, though. He he, he just yells a lot. And I'm like, wait, there's an opportunity here. And I, I they cannot, you know, well, and really still based on it. So what am I going to do? There, there are still shades, dare I say, 50 shades of personalities <laughs> in our industry. <laughs> well done. Well done. Way to weave oh. it all the way back in. <laughs> I just went full circle there. That was great. Yeah, I don't know. Do we want to talk about any of the other like titles on here? I said my bit about, you know, you don't you don't want your cancer panel data that close to development. You want it way on the other side uh, towards the production spectrum but any of these other ones i don't know i haven't ever been a i mean delivery release and build those all kind of sound like the same thing to me and tests where you're part of the sort of like ci cd cycle that maybe we talked about a few weeks ago like you're you're really kind of focused like that there might in those be processes. what that means when i hear test engineer i'm thinking somebody who either clicks through web interfaces manually to test things or they're building test automation suites probably end-to-end -end type stuff not not unit tests but that, that's that's my interpretation and I know that test engineer is a broad term like like almost everything else on this chart so yeah. I know that there's a test engineer listening to me who doesn't do those things and they're screaming at me right now I apologize <laughs> I, I don't mean to exclude you <laughs> you know the one on here that really confuses me I, like I, I look at this and I have no idea what it does is fin ops financial tech ops uh, yeah I know that's what it stands for it's it's fin like fintech but what does well, I know that finance mean? has a bunch of their own data compliance kind of standards that they have to deal with that like nobody else really has to deal with. Like in healthcare, we have HIPAA, and I, in finance, I like I, I don't so know what they do, have. Do in you finance. have med ops or health ops or something? I mean, I, I worked in a fintech I do, not long but it's ago. Not on the charts, so I don't know. Maybe okay. like, it doesn't exist. Oh, we should put HIPAA ops on here. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, is it just DevOps for fintech or, or is it something more specific than that? Is it, I don't know. Uh, I don't work in finance. Yeah. All right. I actually, I, I had the either. opportunity to once, like when I was first going freelance, I was like, oh, do I want to stay in biotech or maybe I should get into some of these other industries. And so I worked on a project with this bank for a little while and like, oh, dear God, like those, the people in IT departments of banks, I think are the most unhappy people on the planet. I just, I couldn't handle it. Like I'd Justifiably so. I'm going. I'm going back to biotech, you guys. Those people are happier. So no, I don't know what they do. I, I nope right out of that real quick. That could be it, and it's 
in its entirety is the people who had those roles in banks said, you know what, we're changing our title and you're going to pay us a lot more if we're going to have to put up with this stuff. <laughs> it might yeah. be. Invent and I can't fault them for that logic. <laughs> I think you should be getting paid. Uh, you should be getting paid the on-call fee, the pain in the ass fee, the unhappiness fee, all of them. You know, cash in, cash in on all of them, you guys. So I think I figured out our new title, guys. I think we're gonna we're gonna invent podcast ops. Ooh, that sounds pretty hipster, doesn't it? It does. I like it. You have you have technical oh, problems. We solve it on a podcast. We are podcast. <laughs> <ops>. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else to talk about or should we move on to some of our exciting yeah. picks? Sounds like pick time to me. All right. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching who wants to go first forgot the name of the book that i'm reading so not me i have to go look it all up right i'm ready all right well like what is it i think we picked this and i think jonathan actually picked this in the last episode but i'm picking rob fitzpatrick's the mom test because after you mentioned it i grabbed a copy and i read it and was just blown away and ecstatic about reading this. And the reason I think it's relevant to the listeners of this podcast, so the synopsis of the book is to how to ask questions so good that even your mom can't lie to you when she answers them. And I think it's relevant to what we do in DevOps because we facilitate a lot of communication and collaboration. And it's important how you ask the questions. Like if you ask your development team, you know, hey, do y'all want this new feature? They're going to go, yeah. But this helps you phrase the conversation so you can find out if they really need that new feature and if they're going to use that feature and if that feature is going to solve a problem that they're having. So that's my pick, the mom test. Awesome. Did you find your book title, Jillian? I did. I did. It is, it is a book called Lucy's Legacy, The Quest for Human Origins. And it is by Dr. Donald, I'm not sure if it's Johansson or Johansson. I think I think it's Johansson, but I'm not sure. And he is one of the uh, archaeologists or paleontologists who discovered the fossil Lucy, which is kind of like one of the really famous human evolutionary fossils. And it's just, it's this like really, really fascinating book. It's actually, the book before that is probably like one of my favorite books, like of all time. It's one of these, it's one of the few books I have an actual physical copy of. And I read it so many times that it fell apart. So then I was looking for the ebook and the ebook of the like the first book that he wrote about kind of his adventure to go off and find Lucy, like it doesn't exist in ebook. It only exists in print. So while, while I was waiting for the print book, I bought this kind of newer book that was really interesting because it talks about kind of a lot of the like newer things that have happened, I suppose, like since the 90s and, you know, kind of like our understanding of human evolution and human fossils and things like that. But it's just it's very, very cool because it's really, you know, like if, if you know anything about archaeologists and paleontologists, most of them are just like out 
digging in the desert or whatever for their entire lives and very few of them ever actually make like really you know like an actually important find so just kind of reading through that whole process and he's a very good storyteller so that was really great it's it's one of these books that was really really influential for me i think it was like this guy and jane goodall that made me kind of want to be a scientist i absolutely thought growing up that i was i was going to be like the next jane goodall and now i sit at a computer all day so that hasn't quite worked out for me, but, you know, they're so awesome. And I still give these books to my kids and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff, uh, sort of like, I really like knowing about the stories of people behind, like, just like these really important and influential findings that really like under, you know, generate a lot of understanding or a lot of question or dialogue among some really important topic. So that's it. One of my, I think this one will also be one of my favorite books. The one that he wrote before this certainly is. Nice. So I guess it's the day for books because I have two picks and they're both books too. So the first one is a book I read probably a, maybe two years ago. And I may have mentioned it on here before. I, I don't remember. But the, the title is Team of Teams, New Rules for Engagement for a Complex World. It's by General Stanley McChrystal and others. But it, it's it's a look at large organizations. And, and if I recall, one of the main ones I look at is, is some elements of the U.S. military, the, the Marines maybe, and how they... Uh, basically, to, to put software terminology on it, how these large organizations are agile. You, we often think of the military as being a, a very heavy top-down organization, but that's not practical, especially when you're doing urban warfare and you need to respond to the situation on the ground. You can't wait to get orders from your commander. Should we take this house or should we should we retreat or whatever? By the time you do that, half your, half your people are, are, are maybe killed or, or injured. So it, it's about how these large organizations... Uh, with the military as one prime example, how they have succeeded in what we would call scaling agile, I would say, uh, in a lot of software tr- uh, parlance. Related that to that, that, that's what some people call it. You look at the scaled agile framework or or less or next to some of these frameworks for scaling Scrum or agile. And and most of them, by the way, in my view, get do it wrong. <laughs> they don't do it the way this book talks about. On the same topic, my second pick, I haven't actually read it yet because it only came out yesterday and I just I just bought my Kindle version today. I'll be reading it this weekend as I fly. So next week, I might pick this again if it's as good as I hope or maybe I'll unpick it if it turns out to be terrible. But, <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week for... <laughs> the, I heard about this book on another podcast, actually, the Troubleshooting Agile podcast. The book is called A Radical Enterprise. Pioneering the Future of High-Performing Organizations. And it's by Matt K. Parker. And since I haven't read it yet, I can't tell you what it's about exactly, but I'll read a little bit of the, the, the description to give you a hint. So it says, the fastest growing and most competitive organizations in the world have no bureaucracies, no bosses, and no bull bleep. The tomato sauce in your pantry, the raincoat in your closet, the smart TV hanging in your living room. What do all of these products have in common? Chances are they were created by organizations where colleagues self-allocate onto teams based on intrinsic motivation, where individuals self-manage their commitment to each other without the coercion of managers, and where teams launch new products and ventures on the market without the control of leaders. So as I told you, I, I heard about it on a podcast where they were interviewing the author, and he was talking about some of his experience working in large organizations and how they sort of overcome our natural tendency for this top-down con- command and control structure how it's unnatural to do that for many of us, but how how they do it. So I'm, I'm really excited to read this book and learn how to work in a radical enterprise. So that's that's my second pick. Right on. 
That does sound interesting. What was that called again? A Radical Enterprise by Matt K. Parker. Cool. What a cliffhanger. <laughs> we got to tune in next week now just to hear. You have to. Yep. <laughs> we should just start a book review podcast, you guys. Like, because, you know, for real, we had the one, we had our guest a couple weeks ago that, you know, gave me all the good books. Yeah. And yeah. I read some of those. Now, Jonathan, you, maybe this is. Maybe this is a new career path for all of us. Book ops. Get out of tech while we still can. Book ops. Book ops. There you go. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for <laughs> tuning in. And gals, I don't want to be exclusionary here. Thanks for tuning in. I guess we'll see you next week for the exciting conclusion of the uh, book review. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Too. Cheers, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.